Since the invention of fire, man has spun stories of gods and monsters. From a million years in the future, heavy metal presents Wonderwork. You know, every great civilization since the dawn of time was built on the blood and rubble of the civilization before it. If you believe that's true, which it is, then what does that say about us? Is the need to dominate other cultures so ingrained in us as a species that we can expect to be wiping out whole societies a hundred thousand years from now? Well, wonder no more. This is the story of the Queensberry Company. This is First Lieutenant Kermit Rogers Felter, Ranking Officer, 17th Platoon Legionnaires, Queensborough Company. And if I'm not mistaken, I fear this will be my last report. Since I am unable to write or access my vocoder at the moment, you'll forgive me for delivering my address orally. As I am the only one who will ever hear it, aside from the female I am here with now, I submit this entry for posterity, and because, like all proud Legionnaires, I am a completionist. Let's see. The mission began at 2300 hours. The Queensbury disembarked Moon Station Cormorant and ported into a dense stretch of forest without incident, molecular or otherwise. Twenty exemplary soldiers under the command of Major Francis X. Beauregard. He led Queensbury on three sweeps prior, and I found him sure-footed, decisive, and a dyed-in-the-wool imperialist. He had my respect, and the respect of the men. I... I just felt important to caveat that. Our continuing objective was to recon blackout sectors of forest along Earth's 49th parallel, Old Germania. We were responding to an alert of an uncatalogued tribe ambushing and crucifying settlers along trade routes. We were to identify these rogue bushmen and remind them they are the king's subjects and they will behave as such. The thought of any earthling still wearing tree bark practicing religion and speaking in clicky, clicky languages was, well, offensive, actually. In the most practical terms, with all of our off-planet competition, we just can't afford to carry the primitives on our backs anymore. With teleportation being as physically exhausting as it is, we pitched camp upon materializing, assigned sentries, and slept in rotations. By 0600 hours, we were breaking camp and erasing any trace that we had been there. As we rolled up our sleeping foils, Major Beauregard took the moment to reinforce in us that, like the Romans, the Ottomans, the Venusians, and the Kilgari who preceded us, we carried the heavy burden of bringing civilization where only savagery existed. This kind of motivation was common before a sweep and kill mission. Not that we hadn't already embraced the belief that civility is quickest achieved with the sharp end of a spear or in our case, a 988 Rapid Rail Long Gun, also known as the Longfellow. In the midst of this, I took notice of our second-in-command, Captain Pavel. He had misplaced his cap and was in a bit of a dervish looking for it. There was no way he was leaving without that lucky hat, which featured a charred bullet hole in the air flap where a round just missed the broadside of his head. We typically turned a blind eye to the captain's superstitions as they bordered on religion, but old world customs often took a generation or two to breed out. We accept this. And Pavel was literally one gin removed from a silicone mine in Proteus, 
In a way, he was no different than this planet, Earth, still rebuilding societal order after two eras under alien rule. Pavel's lower class shame was redeemed in the Legionnaires. That said, Legionnaires are tightly regimented in our behaviors. We don't bunk down until our neatly folded caps are resting atop our neatly folded field jackets. When he finally spotted it under a bush, he was so happy to see it, he made the egregious misstep of not questioning how it got there, especially since it was still neatly folded. We all were watching as he knelt down to reach under the shrubbery. He made a big enough fuss about it, but we didn't expect... It was when he got within an inch of that hand that we first saw the long, emaciated fingers and jagged gray fingernails of a slender hand, pocked with sunspots and gray-blue veins. It snaked out from beneath the leaves and snatched the captain by his forearm. He reflexively pulled back, taking the thing with him and out of its hidey hole. It used that momentum to propel up his sleeve, a three-foot-long, nimble blur shooting up his arm and then swinging itself over his shoulder before settling on his back. In the same continuous motion, it wrapped its naked bony legs around him and crisscrossed at the ankles. It was secured in place, and finally, still enough to discern. It looked like a very little, very old man. Bone thin with loose white skin, a bald head with thin strands of hair wisping about his fleshy skull. Most notably, a nose and chin that were so long and pointed that they almost touched in front of the tight, chapped slit that passed for lips. Its only coverings were a piece of tarp with a hole cut for the head and a rope cinched at the waist. The captain grappled furiously with his diminutive attacker. He was a champion martial artist, and I have personally seen him binge 20 stone. But still from his back, that emaciated old codger grabbed him at the wrist and squeezed its legs to compress the captain's torso. He was already toppling over when the men and I tackled him. At least seven sets of burly arms in a thrashing tug of war. But this thing, this old man, it had fused to him somehow. Maybe it secreted something, maybe it was psychic in nature. But very quickly, we learned that pulling them apart caused the captain tremendous pain. He was too well-trained to scream out in the forest, but the agony was evident in his visage. Private McMurphy had managed to get the old man into a headlock, but released when he saw Captain Vavell was choking and it turned red. There was definitely some sort of pain transference. Even now, with more intimate knowledge, I struggle with the mechanics of this creature. It was Private Luxor who got close and found an opening to take a shot. He pressed his breech pistol against it and loosed a rail at its cranium. But somehow, in yet another inexplicable defiance of physics, it was Captain Pavel's head that burst apart. Exploded in a mist of red vapor and bits, like the breech had been pressed against his head. His body immediately folded. Paul Luxor was agape. We all were. Before the captain's arms could even go limp, the creature shoved off and made a beeline between the men, quick as a whip, and low to the ground. The camp was in chaos as we spun our weapons every which way, trying to track a shot and not rail each other in the process. Its eyes locked on Major Beauregard and bolted right at him. The major was a quick draw, but before his trigger finger had a chance to squeeze, the creature was already spiraling up his arm. He couldn't shake it. Like Captain Pavel a moment ago, Major Beauregard now had this thing on his back, with its legs securing it and its arms holding his neck in a lock. Several of us yelled, hold fire, and barrels down. The major himself didn't have the air to speak, but frantically waved us off. 
The thing scanned the team with those pinprick eyes. I could see its mind working against us. Then, it whispered into the Major's ear. It spoke. I distinctly recognized the harsh Ich and Bach of native German, like some sort of indigenous relic. The back-to-back -back alien invasions and the evacuating of my kind had allowed for all manner of resurgence. Creatures, once thought made up, suddenly allowed to thrive. And now, this fairytale ghoul rested his chin on the shoulder of a major in the king's army and whispered a mud tongue in his ear. To our continued horror, the major listened intently and parroted the utter nonsense that was fed him, saying he didn't want to fight, he's unarmed. But he knows who we are looking for, and he will guide us there. With communication established, I leaned in. What is his name? What does he want? The creature whispered in the Major's ear, and he reiterated. He needed an escort through the forest. Our objective is on the way to where he's going. He will show us in exchange for the escort. Call him Alhoka. I could see the men struggling with the circumstances. I asked the Major if he was ordering us to escort this parasite. Affirmative. And he affirmed without the creature telling him to do so. I mean, there, there is no protocol for this. With the captain dead, I found myself suddenly the second-ranking member of the squad, and feeling very much like the first-ranking member was under the control of a hostile. We certainly couldn't follow his direction. At the same time, if we made a move against it, we risked our leader's safety. I needed to buy time to think. So I suggested we pause to bury our captain's body. The thing responded into the Major's ear. The Major approved the pause and suggested we eat as well. We had just had our breakfast rations, but this worked well. I told the men to eat their R40s. My mind spent the next moments racing. It wouldn't be long before the captain was in the ground and the lunch rations were scarfed down. Major Beauregard was sitting on a log in a sad state. His off-hawker gave him just enough agency to carry on small conversations with the troops. But the thing had reduced him to a marionette, manipulating the Major's arms to hand-feed his food right into its mouth. His uniform was stained with the old man's dirt and food juices spilled from its home. I quickly, but discreetly, collected the two remaining officers, Second Lieutenant Bowman and Lance Corporal Yang. If I was going to make a move, any move, then it had to be kept out of earshot of that thing. And if I were to make a move that potentially relieved the Major of Command, then I would need to assemble a quorum of available officers. Nobody wanted a mutiny charge. Yang was emphatic when he said that the men felt like we would be led to slaughter. Now to me, the wishes of 15 grunts don't outweigh even a debilitated Major. Not by a stretch. But then Bowman spoke up. In the most solemn of tones, he told us that at one point he found a moment to make eye contact with the Major and that the Major gave him a nod, or a look, that implied he knew what we must do and the price of it, and that he wished it done. That is a lot to infer from a single look. Regardless, we didn't see another way. We hatched a plan. In order to ditch off Harker, we'd convince him that we had to reroute to a path that ran along a ravine just 12 minutes from here. We'd cut over and head up. Along the way, we'd flank the Major, and when an opening presented itself, 
one of us would shove the Major and his passenger over. It would be a 12-story drop to the rocks below. I don't care what you are, that kind of impact is quite final. If I sound cold in recounting this, just know we were tortured by our decision. I ordered Yang to quietly survey the men. For a pact this dark, it had to be unanimous. I also decided right then that, as the next ranking officer, it had to be me that gave the push. The votes were in. I approached the Major, still parked on that log, still feeding fruit slices to his captor. I served up the only reasoning I could come up with, since we were down a man, we should reroute along a nearby cliffside. That would give us one less flank to have to defend from our target tribe. Made sense. As soon as the Major voiced agreement, the off-hawker constricted his legs enough to crack a rib and hissed angrily in his ear. The Major asked if there were any other way. What I mean to say is, it felt like it was the Major doing the asking. I shook my head. Surprisingly, and in hindsight, suspiciously, the off-hawker agreed to our scheme. By 0900 hours, the Queensbury were marching in line with the ridge of the cliff to our right and the dense forest on our left. At any moment, the very tribesmen we were here to stop could appear and complicate our plan. But I was fixated on that subhuman sack of excrement that was perched on the Major. The Major didn't speak a word to us. He was eyes forward. State of surrender. At that moment, I was still unsure there wasn't a better way. One that wasn't adjacent to mutiny or murder. I went back and forth until, like an answer to my inner monologue, the Major finally turned his head and looked my way. I saw his eyes. The overture wasn't surrender at all. It was, do it. I saw determination. His scrunched lips didn't have to part to scream. Do it! Second Lieutenant Bowman suddenly fired a shot to draw attention. I didn't order him to, but I didn't hesitate. I charged the Major, shoulder first, putting every pound of torque into it, hitting him at his center of gravity and lifting him off the ground. Off Hawker's squinting eyelids finally went wide. I shocked him. He tried to grab me, but missed by inches. They were gravity's problem now. As for the Major, didn't flail, didn't yell out. We all rushed to the edge. I felt someone grab me from falling over. Even before they hit the ground, me, the men, we knew we had crossed a line that we would have to answer for. It felt like hours, but seconds later, there was a squelching thud. They were dashed on the rocks. The Major came apart like a pumpkin. But damn if that off-fucker didn't immediately slither off him and bolt for the cliff. It was climbing fast, like it was second nature. It screamed a punishing scream at us. Before I could even give the order, the men took flight into the woods. I was right behind them. We ran, casting off our jackets to make up speed. No idea where or when to stop, just full steam ahead. Hats flying off, it's every man for himself and will be the slowest of the 18. I lost sight of most of them, only to run into them, gathered just outside the tree line where they had abruptly stopped for some reason. Everyone was breathing heavily, absolutely freaked out. We found ourselves in a clearing that was semi-sealed with a crescent-shaped rock formation that was boxing us in. Climbing it wasn't an option, and there was nowhere to run but back. Back towards Orfocker. That was not an option. We didn't have options, but 
That didn't mean we couldn't have a plan. I remember yelling for the men to close ranks around me. These men I have known as brave warriors, now staring at me like lost children. If I just had more time to come up with something else, I would have. Even now, I am lost for solutions. So I proposed the most desperate gentleman's deal of all, a tontine. I laid out what we knew already, that that little devil was going to come rocketing out of that forest at any second, and he will lock on to one of us, and that soldier will die just like the Major and the Captain before him. But ahead of that, yes, we will form a firing line and throw everything we have at it. We will light that forest up, but when it dodges every shot, which it will, and latches on to one of us, which it will. We must agree now that the remainder of us will hold that man down, and we will drag that man to the rocks, and we will lower the biggest boulder we can lift onto his chest, killing him, but pinning the monster to the ground once and for all. The men stood at attention and saluted, and one by one voiced their confirmation with an aye aye. Then we turned to face the forest. Eighteen Longfellows and breech pistols scanning the tree line for the slightest movement. Eighteen pairs of eyeballs too afraid to blink, looking at a hundred shadows the parasite could spring from, hoping you're not the one it fancies. Without warning, it leapt from our two o'clock and was galloping towards us at a full clip, legs over hands throwing up puffs of dirt each time its claws or feet left the ground. Everyone started yelling and firing rail after rail. It zigged with inhuman command of velocity, sometimes banking 90 degrees zags while still propelling forward. It closed the distance in seconds, sending us into a free-for-all. We were scrambling and climbing over our brothers like maggots, until a shriek cut through the chaos. Offhocker had made his choice. It was Private Vase. We grabbed them as they tussled and dragged the duo to the predetermined section of the rocks. Lance Corporal Yang and four privates were our designated pallbearers, tasked with hoisting a thousand-pound bolter aloft atop them. My heart broke with the sound of Private Vega's chest buckling under its weight. He was quickly so very dead. Offhocker was alive, of course, pinned under the boulder, one long, veiny arm desperately grasping for anything. We all stood silent, wrecked. Not much like proud warriors at all, no. Moving the boulder had destabilized the rock formation. We heard it rumble and backed up as the side facing us tumbled down with a crash just a few feet away. When the dust cleared, a crater inside of the rock wall was revealed. And inside was a hive. A hive full of those things. Scores and scores of offhocker, hanging off of each other like baby marsupials. Oh, how embarrassingly foolish we had been. Of course it had targeted our officers over Grants. Of course it had allowed us to reroute along the cliff. Those shriveled, unwashed savages rained down on us, sweeping the Queensbury up in a riptide of claws, knees, and elbows. I hammered one in the face while three others snaked my legs. Someone grabbed my neck, another grabbed my wrists. There was no winning this fight. I was laid prone in seconds and adorned with an offhocker of my own. <clears throat> yes, you, bitch. It is hours later. I sit here just outside of their lair and deliver this report to no one. On my back, a little filthy old lady with an unforgiving grip. 
She told me to call her Offhocker. Isn't that right, love? The rest of the Queensberry Company sits here with jockeys of their own. We make eye contact with each other for just a second, then look away. I know they are feeling what I am feeling. The humiliation of an elite 20-man squad being bested by a little old man who never pulled a gun or threw a punch. The cowardice in how we clawed and stepped over each other to avoid the monster. And the shame of having murdered three of our own for nothing. We are their damn service animals now. Made to hand feed them the very fruit they make us climb trees to pick. That's when we're not breaking our backs rebuilding their rock lair. If we slow or resist, they hiss their threats and punish us psychically. It's entirely possible they will work us until we are dead. Well, how about that? Now that I hear myself describe it out loud, <laughs> the irony. <laughs> oh, you clever forest creeps. Bravo. I'd clap if I could. We came out here intent on forcing civilization on the savages. <laughs> but in the end, it seems they have civilized us. <laughs> <laughs> Einzige Weg, das die Schmerzen aufhören, ist meine Befehle zu befolgen. Schmerzen, 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 Schmerzen,